Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm glad that you're alive and tuning in to your funeral service. Welcome to your funeral. You see, as a church, we've had some incredible movement over the past couple of weeks. We've seen multiple people plant a stake in the ground and choose to follow Jesus. They've made Jesus Lord over their life. And that's been incredible. And we've seen people in our church genuinely fighting and struggling with their faith in a way that's leaning into community, that's leaning into obedience, and that is truly following the life and teachings of Jesus. But we have some struggles within our church family that I want to pause our sermon series on the Holy Spirit and I want to address today. Now, some of you are tuning in and you're here and you're exploring, but you're scared of what following Jesus will actually do to your life. You see, you're kind of in and you're out. You're kind of distant. You lean in for a little bit and then you come back. And I really am glad that you're here today. And what I want you to know is I want to help you take the next step in your walk with Jesus, whatever that might look like. Some of you are here and you're still holding on to your former life. You're consuming pornography. You're pridefully controlled by alcohol or drugs. You're craving distraction, some of you including crippling addictions to gaming or food or work to distract you or comfort you or to get you more money so that you can be self-reliant and secure. Some of you are addicted to pursuing illicit sex outside of marriage, and that's been a besetting sin for you. Most of you who are struggling with this are men. And what I want you to know is I love you and I'm glad you're here today, but we need time to deal with this. Now, some of you are here and you are holding on to someone else. Uh, Maybe that might be laying your life down and worshiping your children as little gods. You're consumed with pleasing them, and you're centering your whole life on them at all costs, pushing everybody else away in the process. Some of you are desperately clinging to your spouse. You're laying your sanity down for your spouse or your, your significant other, and you're trying to fix them, and you're melding your life into them as a codependent, vain attempt to be their savior. You're trying to be God for them and to them, and you are pulling away from community and friendship so you can cling to this other person. And what happens as you hide is your life is getting worse. Now, most of you who are struggling with this today are women. And I'm glad you're here and I love you. And I want us to take some time to deal with this. Now, wherever you are today on that spectrum, I want to talk about what it means to die so that you can truly live. Uh, What I mean by this is to die to yourself and your desires, to die to your version of success and achievement and security. For the men in this room, it's to die to your selfish, self-centered, childish indulgences that are killing your family. To the women, it's that, that you can die to trying to be the self-proclaimed savior of your spouse or significant other or your children that is killing your soul. Now, the Bible teaches us is that it's only when we die to ourselves that we begin to embrace the life of Jesus in us. When we let go of control and die to ourselves, we can begin to cling to the cross of Jesus and find our life in him. Now, here's the deal. If you're watching this, and let's say you don't want to grow. 
If you don't want to explore the life and teachings of Jesus, if you truly want to cling to the idols that are replacing Jesus and killing you in the process, then please stop watching this and go to another church. Just stop watching right now because you're going to waste your time. And you're going to cause trouble in our church if you stay because our church is not going to give you what you want. But if you want to fight through these things together, if you want to fight through these things together as a church family, then I want to invite you to stay, listen to this message. I want to invite you to come to a group this week. And I want to invite you to join us in person for breakfast and Bible study on August 1st at the YMCA here in Clarksville. Our main point for this sermon today is this, that when we let go of control, when we die to ourselves, we can begin to cling to the cross of Jesus and find our life in him. And what we're turning to today is Mark 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark 8. Jesus is literally walking to Jerusalem and to what he knows will be his death. And here's the deal. As we explore how Jesus is walking to his death today, I want to invite you to follow Jesus to your own death, on the road to the death of your life as you know it so that you can embrace a life that is abundant like you never could have imagined. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man? to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now the context of this and the focus of this in Mark is Jerusalem. Jesus has not yet been there in the book of Mark. Jesus is shifting towards his inevitable sacrifice and his death. And he's shifting in this book of Mark from demonstrating his power, right? To then demonstrating his submission and weakness and suffering. But right before this, a blind man is healed in Mark 8, right before the text we just actually read. And it's a metaphor, actually. Mark is putting that strategically there to show us that the disciples are blind to the true nature of Jesus. They're failing to understand who Jesus is. And my friends, I think you and I often fail to understand who Jesus is as well. Now, there's four types of spiritual blindness that the disciples have. One is, who is Jesus? Second, what does Jesus do? 
How is he calling the disciples to join him? And finally, why is he doing all of this? You see, the first question that they have is a question of identity. Who is Jesus? Actually, a couple of chapters prior to this, Jesus calms a raging storm while they are in the middle of a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And at the end of that story, it says these words in Mark 4, 41. And they, meaning the disciples, were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and sea obey him. Who then is this, is the question of the disciples. See, they call him teacher. Even Herod, the king of the known world, he questions whether Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, which is actually an Old Testament reference to the future Messiah being the judge and ruler over the world. See, it's all over the map about who Jesus is, what Jesus is saying, the disciples' understanding, even the head of the known world is questioning who Jesus is. And there is a tension and a theme about the disciples being in the dark about Jesus' true identity at this point, that Mark is building the tension. Who is Jesus, his identity? The next question is a question of Jesus' actions. What does Jesus do? See, it's clear the disciples don't have a clue what Jesus is doing. You see, remember, these these. These guys are teenagers, right? They're just teenagers that, that were following this rabbi that said, hey, you, follow me. And they're following him around confused most of the time. He speaks in riddles. He's doing weird things like healing people all the time. He's doing them on the Sabbaths and he's angering all the religious people, but yet the crowds love him and everybody's curious about who Jesus is. He's making whips and whipping the religious people out of the temple and saying that it's his father's house. Now, if you and I were there with the information that the disciples had, we'd be confused too. We have no clue what's going on. And some of his disciples think that Jesus is going to overturn the Roman authorities, right? That he's going to overturn Rome itself. Others think that Jesus is going to set himself up as king over Jerusalem. And some people just want to see when the next free handout of loaves and fishes are. Like they just want some bread and they want some fish and they heard that this guy gives out for free sometimes. There is a confusion about Jesus's actions. Not only that, there's a confusion about even who they are, who the disciples are. How is he calling the disciples to join him? They're following him around, right? They're serving the poor. They're doing some ministry. They're seeing the the lame walk. They're seeing the blind see, but they really don't understand what part they're playing in it. Jesus did not give them a three-ring binder called church planting in the first century Rome. Like, he just didn't give them that, right? He actually said, follow me, and he did a bunch of weird things for three years, and Then he left. He died, he rose again, he left. So there is a clear confusion about their call and how they are participating in the mission of Jesus, which, by the way, they don't even understand the mission of Jesus in the first place, much less how they're participating and how they're a part of it. Now, there's also a question of Jesus' motives. Why is he doing all of this? You see, they're confused about his identity. They're confused about his actions. They're confused about themselves, the disciples. So they're also confused on why he's doing all of this. What is his end goal? What is Jesus' motivation behind doing the things that he does? And you see, my friends, I think these four questions, who, what, how, and why, are the same questions that many of us are asking today. Who is Jesus to me today? Who is Jesus to me? Is he angry with me? Is he loving? Is he disappointed? Is he proud of me? The second question, what in the world is Jesus doing? 
life is not clear. It seems like the best of us are taken away and the worst of us are the ones that stay. It seems like those who are wicked seem to prosper. It seems like that those who are righteous seem to get cast away. What is Jesus doing? Next question of how can I join Jesus? What are my next steps in life? What are my next steps here? And finally, why does Jesus do all of this? Because a lot of times life doesn't make sense. And even when you're a follower of Jesus, life's, you, it's a struggle to understand life sometimes. And in the book of Mark, actually, Jesus is surprisingly comfortable with the ambiguity about who he is and what he's doing. He doesn't need to have all of this clarity from the get-go. What he does say is, follow me. And on the dusty road of Jesus, wildly and inextricably confused, the disciples begin to be discipled. And unbeknownst to them, they are being trained and prepared for the greatest mission the world has ever seen. So my friends, today, what if I told you that in the midst of some of the most confusing, challenging, unexplainable moments of your life, that God is preparing you in those moments for your greatest work and your most important mission? And as Mark 8 is the watershed moment in the book of Mark, it really is the pinnacle up to this point where Jesus is making things crystal clear. I want you to have a watershed moment today as we explore four things together. The question of who is Jesus? The question of what does Jesus do? The question of how does Jesus call us to join him? And then finally, the question of why does Jesus do this? So let's begin with who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as the Christ. Mark 8, starting in verse 27 again. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered them, you are the Christ. My friends, Jesus is staying outside of the city, and he's trying to get more one-on-one time with the disciples. He's teaching them through the smaller villages. And it was common for a rabbi to walk in front, talking to the disciples that were behind them. So Jesus is walking out front. The disciples are walking behind them, and they're kind of walking along the road. And Jesus is doing this survey to teach them about himself. And it's clear that most people have a high view of Jesus. The list of John the Baptist and Elijah are major prophets in Israel's history. Herod, the king of the known world, even questions the identity of Jesus in Mark 6:14. But my friends, no one anticipates who Jesus really is. What they're trying to do is put them in their framework of knowledge, and prophet was kind of the best category to categorize Jesus in. And this is a high honor, but it does not touch a candle to who Jesus really is. And so then Jesus turns the conversation to the disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? Jesus is moving from the corporate and the general to the personal and the specific. He wants to know clearly and plainly who they think he is. And actually, this is his grace in addressing the question that they asked all the way back when the winds died down and the seas calmed in chapter four. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. And Mark gave us the answer actually in the very first words of the book. Page one, verse one, chapter one, he actually already tells us who Jesus is and he gives us the answer and it's 
it's, it's very interesting that then the whole rest of the book up to this point has been silent about it. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, look with me here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it goes silent about who Jesus is for eight chapters until boom, right here. We've been waiting to see this truth revealed since page one, verse one of Mark. And Peter is the one who steps up and does it. And he steps up and he declares what we have been waiting for, what Mark has been building the anticipation of in the book. And then Jesus will ultimately make this public on his own terms in Mark 14, in front of the entire world. But our hearts are longing to unknow who is Jesus. And he makes the statement, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is a title. Now, it's not necessarily a name, right? So my name is Joshua Belden Young, okay? Well, that, that is not like Jesus Christ. It's not like his last name. What that is is a title. So it's more appropriately understood as Jesus the Christ. See, the word Christ means anointed one, Messiah or Savior. You see, Christ is the one who formed the world. Christ is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Christ is the one who was foretold about from the ancient of times. Christ is the one who was promised to Israel. He was the one who would set the world right again and rule and reign over all things. Christ is the one who will judge the world with rightness and with justice. The Christ is not simply John the Baptist. He was the one who formed the hairs on the head of John the Baptist when he was still in the womb. Christ is not Elijah. He is the one to whom Elijah invoked when he defeated the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. The Christ is not simply a prophet. He is the topic of all the prophecies for all of time. He is the thesis statement of every prophecy and every story of all the ages in the entire history of the human race. And this man, Christ, stands in front of the disciples now in Caesarea Philippi. And my friends, this man, Christ, stands in front of you today. Now I'm going to ask you, I've got four points and I've got four questions. And the first question is this, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Have you submitted to Jesus as Lord? You see a lot of people grow up and they say, well, I believe that Jesus was a real person and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that changes nothing about their eternal destiny. My friends, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if he is Messiah, if he is the Christ, if he is the anointed one, if he is the king of the universe for you, you must confess that he is your king and Lord and Christ, that he is your Messiah and savior. And the question is, have you done that? Because if you have not, if you look over the course of your life and you have not put a stake in the ground that said, Jesus is my Lord, I submit my life under his leadership, then my friend, you are not a Christian. And the most loving thing I can tell you today is that. Because just because you saw Jesus on a flannel graph growing up does not mean that you are a Christian. Whether you have made him Lord of your life does. Who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as the Christ. The second question that we come to is what does Jesus do? Jesus the Christ suffers and dies. Look with me at Mark eight thirty one, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Now you see, after this victorious declaration, Jesus began to teach something that would absolutely shock us if we were sitting there listening to him. And it shocked his disciples that he, although being the long-expected Christ, he is the long-expected Messiah and Savior of the world, he would suffer, be rejected, be murdered, and rise again. So the first thing he says is he's going to suffer. And this is really, again, watershed moment in the book of Mark. This is where we are introduced to the entire theme of Mark, which is Christ the innocent sufferer. The whole theme of Mark is about how Christ is the innocent sufferer. And this goes so countercultural to the narrative of victory, the narrative of overcoming that the Israelites wanted and that oftentimes you and I want in our own lives. They wanted a savior to bring salvation from their physical oppressors, the Romans, not suffering at the hands of them, which is actually what happens. Jesus suffers at the hands of the Romans. He is executed by the Romans, the oppressors of his people. The second thing he says is that he will be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. My friends, it's hard to understand this because we're not a first century Jewish person, but this list makes crystal clear. It's a comprehensive rejection of Jesus by all the representatives of God's people. The, the, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, all rejecting Jesus, it means that he will be rejected by his own people. And it is directly and intentionally juxtapositioned from the declaration in the previous verses that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ. He's making it clear that he actually is the Christ, and yet he will be rejected by his very people. So he's anticipating his suffering and death at the hands of the Romans. He is saying that he will be rejected by his people. And then he says he will be murdered. And this is where it makes no sense to the disciples. How in the world could he be the savior of the world if he dies? How can he save Israel? How can he save them? They struggle to see Jesus's purpose in this. And we see this with Peter's fearful response. But then Jesus says something else that the disciples seem to always gloss over. He says that he will rise again. And he continues to clarify this in subsequent passages. But it seems like the disciples completely gloss over this fact completely. It seems like they don't even hear it, like it wasn't even mentioned. Now remember, for the next point, it's very important. They are walking towards Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was set on a hill. It's actually set in a very militarily strategic location on top of a hill where you can see 360 degrees around it. So Caesarea Philippi is in one of the valleys, and Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem to his death. And it's very important that we understand that because of the next verse. It says, Peter rebukes Jesus by taking him aside. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this means that Peter, who is supposed to be following behind his master, gets equal with Jesus. He comes up and gets equal with Jesus. He pulls Jesus to the side and starts rebuking his master for saying such crazy things. Now, the question that we have to ask is, why in the world did he do this right after he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ? Like you'd think that Peter, having just said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Lord, you are God himself, you are come to save us. You'd think that he wouldn't have the audacity to do this. But it's important to understand who Peter is. Peter was something called a zealot. The, the zealots were a Jewish religious fanatical faction who opposed the Romans ruling over them so much that they wanted to fight and take up arms against the Romans, and really be terrorists to fulfill this 
messianic prophecy to usher in the Messiah coming by taking up arms against their Roman captors. And what Peter has always wanted in his whole life is he's wanted to win. And suffering, rejection, pain, and murder, and death don't sound like winning to Peter. And so in his anger and in his desire to see his version of God's kingdom come, Peter lost sight of the true win, which was salvation. And he totally missed the fact that Jesus said he was going to rise again. And really what I think was motivating Peter in this moment was that he was fearful. And this fear motivated the rebuke of his master. But my friends, isn't Peter's blindness our own? I have such difficulty with not being the savior of my own story. See, are you and I comfortable with a suffering Christ? Can you be comfortable not picking up arms and being the savior of your own life? So often that we want to work and be our own savior, that we want to pick up the arms and fight the battles ourselves. And the scriptures actually help us make sense of the centrality of Jesus' suffering and actually our lack of ability to be our own savior in our own stories. Let's look with me at Hebrews 2, 9 to 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. My friends, the pathway to our salvation, the pathway to redemption is marked with the suffering and the death of Christ, not our death. He is our substitute who took the punishment that we deserve so that we experience the grace that we do not deserve. The substitute is the only way. Without the shedding of blood, it says elsewhere in Hebrews, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But we see that Jesus was the one who was made into a human. Jesus is the one who suffered death. Jesus is the one who tasted death for everyone. Jesus is the one who was made perfect through suffering so that he then may be crowned with glory and honor. And my friends, so often you and I try to be the savior in our own story. We try to get the glory and honor by tasting the death of others. We try to take on the sufferings of others as martyrs. And many of the women in our church are struggling with this right now. Some of you lay your life down and worship your children as little gods, consumed with pleasing them and centering your life on them at all costs. Some of you lay down your sanity for your spouse. You try to fix them and meld your life into theirs in a codependent, vain attempt to be their savior. You are trying to be their God. You are trying to save them and work and fight for them. And what happens is, is when you're doing these things, whether it's with your children or with your spouse, with your significant other, what inevitably happens is you will pull away from community. You'll pull away from friendship and you will hide and you will wither and die and your life is getting worse and worse. And my friends, this suffering Christ stands in front of you today. And the second question at the end of our second point that I have for you today is this. Do you believe that you need Jesus to suffer as your substitute? Are you willing to try to stop to suffer as the insufficient savior of your children or your spouse or significant other or the people around you? Are you willing to stop trying to fix others in your own strength? 
Can you believe that Jesus has already done the work that you are trying to accomplish? And can you rest and be in community and be healed? So who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as the Christ. What did Jesus do? Jesus the Christ suffers and dies on our behalf as our substitute. The third question, how does Jesus call us? Jesus the Christ calls us to die. Mark 8, starting in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. My friends, Jesus rebukes Peter back. And this is by no means an equal rebuke. The disciple is reminded of his place, but I think it was in a very physical sense. Remember, they're going up to Jerusalem. Peter has to become equal with Jesus to pull him to the side to begin to rebuke him as if he would teach him. And this is a little conjecture, but I think it's a reasonable one. I think Jesus puts his well-worn hands on Peter's shoulders and he pushes him back down the hill and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about the things of the Lord. You're thinking about your own things. You're thinking about your own goals. I really think he put his hand on his shoulders and he put him back down the hill. The call of Jesus is to follow him. Get behind me. Go where Christ goes. Walk where Christ walks. Do what Christ does. And Jesus, in this beautiful moment, now lovingly reminds Peter that his place is not at the front. He's not in the driver's seat. But Peter's place is behind, following his rabbi. Now, my friends, let me just pause here real quick and say, how many of you are trying to tell Jesus what to do and how to do it? How are you trying to dictate your own life? How many of you are trying to be the master and the commander of your soul? How many of you are trying to take the wheel and trying to direct your life in the direction that you want it to go? My friends, Jesus invites all of his disciples to go where he is going. He says, get behind me and follow me. Now he says, come after me. If anyone wishes to come after me, the beauty and the goodness of Christ is our motivation to follow him. Not getting a pristine life, not guaranteed success, but the fact that we get Christ, that we get his substitutionary death for us, that we receive his life on behalf of us. He's earned this life that he wants to give to us. And there's three things that he tells us to do to come after Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what Jesus says. One, deny yourself. Men, Many of you are struggling to deny yourself this week. You are still consuming pornography or illicit sex outside of marriage. You're consuming women as objects and you're crushing your marriage or other women in your life. Some of you are pridefully controlled by alcohol or weed and arrogantly flaunting it in front of others. You're creating codependence around you when you are supposed to be leading them to Jesus. You're trying to lead them to try to be your savior. Some of you are craving distractions. You're indulging crippling addictions to gaming or food or substances to distract yourself or comfort yourself because you can't be alone with who you are. Some of you are succumbing to pursuing work or more money to get your own self-reliance and security. My friends, the call of the Christian is to deny the immediate, to follow the eternal. And it's time to die today. Welcome to your funeral. 
The second point, take up your cross. This instrument of death, the cross, was not the happy message that many Christians today wear around their necks or on earrings, but this was a torture device. This was a mechanism of death, one of the most brutal ever devised in human history. The closest thing that I can think of is the electric chair. And even that doesn't come close because the electric chair only causes you to suffer for a few minutes, the cross for many hours and sometimes even days. But essentially that's what Jesus is saying. Pick up your electric chair. Take up your instrument of death. Take up your cross. Embrace it. Cling to it. Bring it close to you. The call of the Christian is to pick up your instrument of death. Pick up the thing that's going to kill you. Welcome to your funeral. Third, Jesus says, follow me. And where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross? Because he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So just Jesus denied himself in the garden. Jesus picked up his cross after a brutal beating. And he says, follow me. Where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross? He was going to Golgotha, the place of the skull, that place where he would ultimately be crucified, the place of his death. My friends, we are not called to pick up our cross and go to a field of flowers where it's all roses and buttercups. We are called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to Golgotha, to follow Jesus to the death of ourselves, to follow Jesus to the death of our desires, to follow Jesus to the death of our distractions, to follow Jesus to the death of our longings, to follow Jesus to the death of our kingdoms, to follow Jesus to the death of our goals and our metrics of success for our life. And some of you here watching this are still holding on to your former life and it is killing you and it is killing your family. You are not men, you are boys. And it shows in your family's disarray. And many of your relationships with your wives are the relationship of mothers to their children. Your wife a lot of times feels like your mother, where she has to coach you. And she has that relationship like a mother to a child trying to parent you rather than equally husband and wife laboring together for the gospel, laboring together for your children, laboring together to see the work of Christ moving outward. She feels like your mom and you're acting like a child. That's what some of you are experiencing in your marriages today. And so this dying Christ is standing in front of you today. The third question that I have for you is this. Are you done being a little boy? And are you willing to be a son of God? Taking up the mantle of Jesus and dying to your desires. Are you willing to deny your selfish, childish desires to be able to lead your family to the cross of Jesus, denying yourself? Are you done killing your family, with the weight of your selfishness and are you willing to come into community to be healed and to rest and to learn how to lead? That's the question I have for you today. Are you willing to do that? Who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as Christ. What does Jesus do? Jesus the Christ suffers and dies on our behalf as our substitute. Three, how does Jesus call us? Jesus the Christ calls us to die. And finally, the question of why. The fourth and final point. Why does Jesus call us. Jesus the Christ gives us his life. Look with me at Mark 8, 35. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? My friends, Jesus' death is the only way to true life. And dying to yourself 
is the only way to true life. Jesus wants you to thrive. Jesus wants you to have marriages that are unified. That's not like a parent and child, but that is actually co-laborers together. Jesus wants you to grieve your sin and addiction, and he wants you to run after his righteousness. Jesus wants you to follow him with your life and experience his resurrection power over your life. That's what he wants for you to do. Do you want that? Because that sounds like a pretty daggone good life, doesn't it? My friends, you have to go to Golgotha. You cannot get to the resurrection power of an empty tomb without the hard road of the cross. Let me say that again. You cannot get to the resurrection power of an empty tomb without the hard road of the cross. Jesus says, come and die. Why? So that you might live, so that you can die to yourself, so you can have the life of Christ in you. You give up your life to gain it. And for some of you, this might mean that you need to take extra steps to get help. You might need to go to counseling. You might need to answer the phone when I call you. So for some of you, it might mean that you might need to check yourself into a mental, wellness, uh, mental wellness program to deal with some of these issues. But the goal of this is not self-help. It's giving up three things. It's giving up pride, saying, I can't do it on my own. It's giving up control, which says, I can show you I can do it on my own. See, pride says, I can do it on my own. Control says, I'll show you I can do it on my own. And the distraction that comes when those things fail is, I'll overwork so I can continue to embrace the illusion that I can do it on my own. Do you see how that works? The pride says, I can do it. The control says, I'll show you. I'll manipulate my environment to show you. And when that, that fails, you just distract yourself. Look with me at Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. My friends, this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. This is the invitation of the suffering servant, Jesus the Christ. Do you want newness of life? You need to go to the Ancient of Days. Do you want ultimate purpose? You need to submit to Christ's purpose in your life. Do you want to gain your life Lose it in Christ. You want to live, then you must die. Here's the greatest truth. Your greatest work is to die. Your greatest struggle will be to give up, to lay your life down before the author of life, to die to yourself so that he can fill you with his life and his power. Come and die to yourself. Come and live for Jesus. When you seek to save your life, you will lose it. When you lose your life in Christ, you find it. And my friends, the living Christ stands in front of you today. And the fourth question I have for you is this. Are you willing to embrace this new, infinite, universe-changing life of Jesus that he willingly offers you? Are you done killing your soul by trying to fix yourself or others? Are you done indulging your selfishness and killing your family? Do you want newness of life? All you have to do is die to yourself and embrace and be filled with this new life in Jesus that he has prepared for you. Who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as the Christ. What does Jesus do? Jesus the Christ suffers and dies on our behalf as our substitute. How does Jesus call us? Jesus the Christ calls us to die. Why does Jesus call us? Jesus the Christ gives us life. Now if you're joining us and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I talked about this earlier. I want to invite you to believe the work of Jesus for you. 
to die to yourself and commit your life to him so that you may live. This means that you've got to hear this message. You've got to believe that it's true for you. And then you have to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life, making him Christ, making him the Messiah over your life. If you do that, all you have to do is pray simply and say, God, I have done this on my own and I don't want to do it on my own anymore. I have been trying to live apart from you and I can't. And so I die to myself. I make you Lord over my life and I believe that you have done this work for me. Please, I need you. That's all you got to say. You pray that right now and it's done. You're a follower of Jesus, if it's sincere. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus today, I want to encourage you and challenge you. Christ is your life, but you can still live in your former passions. And actually, in Romans, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus, to Christians. And he says these words, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the question is, how, do, how are we led by the Spirit of God? How do we put ourselves in a posture to be led by the Spirit and not live according to the flesh as Paul is warning his friends, the Romans? Well, there's four things. Spend time with Jesus. Consistently, legitimately spend time with Jesus. That's praying, that's reading the Bible, that's meditating, that's silence, that's solitude, that's being in community. All of those things encompass spending time with Jesus. But daily, spend time with Jesus. Make it authentic, make it real. Second, be in community. You cannot obey the commandments of Jesus on your own. You cannot be obedient to commandments of Jesus without being a part of a local church family where you are known, loved, and cared for. You cannot fulfill the commandments of Jesus for you unless you do that. And so be in community. Show up to a group this week where you are known, where you are loved, where you are cared for, where people want to help you in your walk with Christ. Third, listen to the word proclaimed. Come to the gatherings. Come be a part of this. Be a part of this family. But listen to the word proclaimed because this will help you. It is beneficial for your walk with Christ. This is how you can be led by the Spirit as you listen to his word preached and proclaimed. But then I'm going to add a fourth one, which I typically don't do, but today I want to. Get the help you need to give up your pride and your control and your distraction and to be the people of God. Some of you need additional help. And that might mean reaching out to me. That might mean going to an in inpatient rehab facility so that you can overcome some of these besetting addictions. That might mean you need advanced mental health counseling as you're dealing with PTSD issues that are affecting you and your family. Get the help that you need, and we can help you with that as a church. So as we conclude, I want to read a couple passages from Colossians 3 as we wrap up today. This is what he begins with in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. My friends, Jesus is the ultimate good. And when you have him, when you cherish him, when you die to your pride and control, when you die to trying to be the savior or indulging your flesh, his life begins to work in you. 
as you set your mind to him in prayer and in the reading of the scriptures and in service and in sacrifice, you will find his resurrection life becomes real in your life. Welcome to your funeral. Now, if you are exploring faith, I want you to stay with us. If you don't want to grow, if you listen to this message, you're like, eh, I don't want to do this. I, I think it's too hard. If you don't want to explore, if you want to continue to cling to the idols that are replacing Jesus and killing you, then please go to another church. Please don't come back to Redeeming Home. Don't come to our gathering on this upcoming Sunday because here's the deal. We're not the church for you and you're not going to like it here and you're going to cause problems anyway. So just don't do it. But if you want to fight through these things and if you want to fight through these things together as a family, then show up to group this week. Show up on August 1 to the YMCA and gather with us. Have breakfast with us. You see, my friends, this goes back to our main point. When we let go of control and die to ourselves, we can begin to cling to the cross of Jesus and find our life in him. And a mind and heart focused on Jesus, focused on his humility, focused on his control over the universe, focused on your weakness, all of that is the key. And when you do this, when you give up these momentary sins, these momentary attempts to help other people as a savior, the momentary indulgences of your flesh, when you give those up, when you die to those things, it will only serve to remind you of the truth of Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Redeeming hope, welcome to your funeral. Let's begin to live our lives hidden with Christ in God this week in a new way. Thank you so much for watching and have a good week. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.